This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Before we read this famous text, let me remind you about the situation in Israel and Judah at this point of the book of Isaiah. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel had teamed up with Syria to oppose the southern kingdom of Judah and King Ahaz. And so it's safe to say that there's really crisis in the land at this time. Now, just earlier in the book, in chapter 6, the Lord called Isaiah as a prophet. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And, And Isaiah saw this magnificent vision, and he's cast into the throne room of God. And in light of God's glory, he came really face to face with with the deepest issue. The the deepest issue is not all these battles that are going on, which that is a problem. But it's really with his sinfulness, with his depravity, with his sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. But it wasn't just him. He said, And I dwell in the midst of... Of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So not only was Isaiah sinful, but the people of Judah were deeply sinful. At the end of chapter 8, there's really not a lot of exciting things to be found. At the end of chapter 8, right, we don't have a lot of exciting things to hear. Just listen to the description of Isaiah in verse 22 of chapter 8. It says, And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So this is a time of anguish. It's a time of doom and gloom, which is not super uplifting for Christmas, is it? But it gets a lot better, okay? So look with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for its truth, for its clarity. Father, help us to see Jesus this morning. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now in verse 1, Isaiah is describing this gloom of the people we're going to experience. He also mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali. And everybody, we just all know exactly where that is, right? No, we don't. But these are two northern areas, and they're the two northern areas of Israel that were first invaded by the Assyrians. And this is later on. So the text moves a scene of this great darkness through the destruction, the destruction of the people of, in northern Israel being taken out. They're gone to this scene of hope. But it's out of this, really, this great darkness that there's a great light. We'd even say a messianic glory. And the text, it's speaking about the future as if it's already happened. Because in a sense, there's such a surety of God's word that it is certain. Isaiah proclaimed that God has led the people already to rejoice because he's freed them out of bondage just like he did when Gideon defeated the Midianites. We see the yoke, the staff, we see the rod. What were those? Those were means of oppression, but they have all been broken. In fact, this victory is so final that it says that uh, all the debris that's left over from the battle, it's going to be burned. There's no need for it anymore. It's all the battle, the war is over, the victory is complete. So how would the Lord accomplish this great victory? Who, Who would bring this peace to the land? They're really not living in a time where this seems like it would happen, like they have a lot of good candidates. And this brings us to our text this morning in verses 6 and 7. So look with me again to verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this great, this overwhelming victory for God's people, it it would occur not by the rise of of a great military leader, not by a great captain or a general who's already hanging around, not even by one of the kings in Isaiah's day, but by the birth of a child. In fact, it's not even what the child's going to do. It's actually the birth itself that is emphasized. Notice Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born. That word for, it connects everything in those other verses from 1 through 5 to 6. For... This child is born, this promised birth of a child. And interestingly, again, it's not even what the child is going to do. It's the birth itself which is emphasized. So if you're reading this, if you were in Isaiah's day, that the natural question arises in our minds. It's pretty obvious. What would you be asking? Well, who is this child? Where is this child? We might say, what child is this, right? Now some will point to the child being King Hezekiah possibly King Josiah. And while each did some important things, each did some bad things too, but they didn't quite accomplish what was mentioned in verses 1 through 5, did they? So what child is this? Let's look to the text. We see here in the next line that not only is a child born, but also a son is given. Now, the birth of a child is a pretty incredible event, isn't it? There are few things in life, at least that I have experienced, that are more wonderful and amazing like childbirth. I mean, I will never forget the day 
that my daughter was born, even though I was running on about three hours of sleep and I didn't sleep for the next week and all the different things. But it was a wonderful and amazing day. However, we wouldn't necessarily call childbirth a miracle or miraculous. I mean, maybe if we're trying to use emphasis, but it's wonderful, but it's also natural. It's how things are supposed to happen. It's, it's God who does this. It's the way God has ordered things. But it's not necessarily supernatural, at least not outside of what the created order. But Isaiah is emphasizing something else in this text. Yes, a child is born, but not just a child being born, a son is given. So the one who was born was was not just any child. He was a son. And we know this actually to be God's very own son, his only begotten son, whom he gave for us. That's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this child, this, this son was, was given, and he was, he was given unto us freely, and graciously by God. So we say this child is, is the gift of God. He was promised to the Jews. And, and he was the promised Messiah who would finally bring an end to their oppression. And the Davidic king who would carry the government upon his shoulder, as the text says. But he was also given to the world, wasn't he? As a savior to all who would believe. He was given to us. He was given. Just as the angel announced to the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Unto you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So if we're going to look and continue to answer this question, what child is this? We've got to consider the names. There's four names here. He's said to be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, I think the best way to take these is there's two couplets in these names. The first two names tell us who he is in himself. And the second pair tells us who he is for his people, who his people know him as. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. Now, the word translated wonderful, it can mean miraculous. It's used often to describe the mighty works that God does. So we could call his name Miraculous Counselor or even Supernatural or Divine Counselor. And the idea here is that he possesses wisdom. In fact, the coming king is the fullness and embodiment of divine wisdom. We see in Isaiah 11 verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We saw that in our call to worship this morning, didn't we? In Isaiah 28, 29, it says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You know, we all search for wisdom. Whether we know it or not, we all want wisdom. We need wise counsel. And it is when we're faced with the crossroads of life. You know, life, there's often defining points in life, decisions that you have to make. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go? Where my next job? All these different things. And we need wisdom. Now, growing up, my pastor in Birmingham, he would always say, that, you know, there's really a difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know what that is? You can describe it like this. You know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, But wisdom is if you don't put it in your fruit salad, right? They don't mix. 
So it, it takes wisdom to put knowledge into action. Now, most kings are, are only as good as their counsel. It's only as good as the advice that they have around them. The person who attends to the king, they give them advice. They help them plot the right course. And if you think about it, this is the stability of any leader, of any kingdom, any nation. It, it depends on the decisions that the leader makes. Right? And so it's this child here has divine wisdom. The idea is that his kingdom and his people, they're going to persevere because every time a decision has to be made, he makes the right one. Now, when Jesus spoke, people noticed that about them, didn't they? I mean, if you just, you just open up the Bible and, and you read the Beatitudes or, or you read the Sermon on the Mount, you listen to his parables, people were at awe at his teaching. It was so penetrating, so true. There was no one who spoke like him. There was no one like him. There was this infectiousness to his words. I was listening to someone last week. He was talking about how he became a Christian, his journey from unbelief to belief. And he said one day he opened up the Gospels and he started to read about Jesus and his works and his words. And he said his, his eyes were just open. He, he said it, he had never read someone with such wisdom. It was just so obviously true what he was saying. And I think that's what we see in Jesus, this embodiment of wisdom. And we also have to think about wisdom itself. Where do we go for wise counsel? It's kind of interesting the places that people will go, the means that they will do just to try to get the right thing. But God's people, we should go to Him. We should go to His Word. So let's go to Jesus, who is our wise counselor. Next, the child is named Mighty God. Now, perhaps you could imagine a human being named a miraculous counselor. Probably not, but, but maybe so. We could say we, could, we know some wise counselors. But, but mighty God, if we just call an ordinary man mighty God, that's blasphemous, right? So who is worthy of this title except God himself? Certainly not Hezekiah, certainly not any other man but Jesus himself, who is God in the flesh, now, this child is the one who Isaiah spoke of a few chapters earlier in chapter 7, who he said was Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us, right? Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which, of course, means God with us. Now, when you hear the title, Mighty God, we should, we should think about God's divine power. We should think about the great things that God has done in history. Maybe our minds should think about Genesis chapter 1, where God just spoke everything into existence out of nothing. He spoke, it wasn't, and then it was. Or perhaps we should think of Exodus, when God rescued His people out of bondage from Pharaoh, when He split the Red Sea and His people crossed over on dry land and the entire Egyptian army was destroyed. Perhaps Isaiah wants us to consider Gideon. Remember, that's verse 4. Remember how Gideon used 300 men with torches and jars to defeat the entire Midianite army. And since this child is the same mighty God, he has the power. If He's the God who can do all of those things, He's the God who has the power to liberate and free His people out of bondage to Assyria, Babylon, to any other earthly power. But He's also able to free His people from every spiritual power 
as well. The first two names of the child show us that he has divine wisdom, divine power. We see this same attribute applied to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The third name we come to is Everlasting Father. And if you're like me and you first read that, that's, that's kind of a bit odd. What do we do with that? He was just named as a son, and now he's called Father. But rest assured, Isaiah is not making a Trinitarian statement. He's not saying that the Son is the Father, the Father is a Son. But to call this child, this Son, the Son, to call Him the Everlasting Father is to say that He is the Father or the author of all things. And that's what we find in John. John 1.3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So in the sense, we can say that Jesus is the author. He is the Father in that sense as Creator. This time of the year, we become so accustomed with hearing about the Incarnation, with hearing about the birth of Christ, with hearing about the miracle, which truly was a miracle of Christmas, that It can pass us by. We're expecting it. You're ready. When I said we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, okay, that makes sense, right? But consider that Jesus, who was very much born of Mary, was also, in a sense, the father of Mary, the creator in that sense. And that as the everlasting father, he has no beginning, he has no end which speaks of Him basically possessing what we could say is divine eternity, eternity past, eternity present. The uncreated One, the Creator of everything, the Eternal One took on flesh, entered into time and space. The Incarnation, His birth, was not His beginning. He existed before He was born. Now, a king is also a kind of father, we could say. So, to say He's everlasting is saying that He's going to be their loving fatherly king forever, which speaks to his divine care. This king, he doesn't abuse his power, but he's going to rule as a caring father. Have you ever thought about the fatherly, the caring nature of Jesus? Jesus called for the little children to come to him, didn't he? He also said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This king rules with the care of a father towards his subjects, his brothers, his sisters, his sons, his daughters. And since he is an everlasting father, he has no need of a successor. Now while the kings of Israel and Judah, they failed. Really, all of them. They had some good ones, mostly bad ones, but they all eventually failed. But this everlasting Father, He'll sit upon the throne of David forever. Just as Micah prophesied in Micah 5.2, He said, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And as the everlasting Father, He also offers eternal life to be their Father for all eternity. 
All of those who come to him and rest in him are eternally secure. And that's what Jesus says in John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we have Jesus as this loving father where we secure in his arms. The final name of this child and the one that I think everything is leading us to is Prince of Peace. And when it comes to Christmas time, a lot of people talk about peace. And I think it's sort of fair to say that there's some peace during the holiday season, sometimes. Of course, nothing says peace quite like two grown men fighting in Walmart over a discounted TV, right? I mean, that's, yeah, but anyway, it's the Black Friday madness or, you know, family members sitting very close to each other but not talking to each other. But anyway, in general, there can be a peaceful, although sometimes stressful, spirit around Christmas. But what is the peace that the world desires? The peace that the people talk about? When it comes to world peace, what do they want? Maybe it's an end of war. They say, well, if we could just stop fighting, wherever it may be, it changes all the time. But right now we could say if they could just stop fighting in Ukraine, we would have peace. And while we certainly do want for that, and we pray for that, right? We pray for an end. You know what happened if Russia decided to leave Ukraine? Well, eventually, at some point, at some time, someone else would start fighting again. And the same was true in the history of Israel. If it wasn't the Canaanites, it was, you know, Syria. If it wasn't Syria, it was the Assyrians. If it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. If it wasn't the Babylonians, it was the Romans. Right? Over and over and over. There's always someone coming, some type of battle. So an end of war doesn't really mean peace. Not the way we really want it. So we think we could have peace. Well, maybe if we could all just... I don't know, but we'd all get on the same political agenda or we could rally behind the right social issues or, or, or whatever we want. There's all sorts of things that we think, well, if we have that, we'll have peace. But it really doesn't last, does it? But this child, he is the Prince of Peace and he brings ultimate, he brings divine peace, the peace that we most desperately need. First and foremost, he brings peace to the war that we could never win. He provides peace with God. And brothers and sisters, consider the cost of that peace that he purchased for his people. Isaiah tells us later in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he said, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This child was born, okay? And we think about the nativity of this child was born, but not so that he could live, but so that through his death we might live. This child was destined to die for our peace. There is a beauty to the Christmas narrative, to our Lord's nativity, to, to think that eternity laid there in a lowly manger, to think about the God himself, the son of God would humble himself to that level, to stoop down to that level, to come to the lowliest of lowly, not even have a place to sleep. But his love didn't stop there, did it? He brought us peace by his death. The great hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sings, it says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, 
mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yes, he was born. He was born that we no more may die. And he accomplished it. How? That he died. The endless, the innocent, the spotless king of glory. Maybe you've never thought of yourself as at war with God. Well, I don't need peace with God. I'm good with God. Maybe you're not a believer and you think, well, I'm okay with God. You try and do the right things. I would never go to war with God. I'd never, you know, I don't want to try to start anything and I'm not going to win. However, the Bible is clear that just being okay with God, that's really a deception. It's just nothing but a false facade. Why? Well, we're all born sinners. And when we think about this idea of sin, it's not just a mistake, it's really to reject God's authority, to reject Him as King, and it's really to take Him off the throne and declare ourselves as God, to say, no, you're not God, I'm God. R.C. Sproul said that every sin is an act of cosmic treason against our Creator. It's really an upsurping of His authority. So in other words, to sin is to go to war with God, and we've all sinned, so we're all at war with God. But Christ has brought an end to this war. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for all who are in Christ Jesus, we can say that the strife is over, the battle is done, the victory is won. This child brings peace with God. He also brings peace with others. Something that we could desperately use, right? Ephesians 2, 14-15, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. Our world, it, it continually fights with one another. And almost everyone thinks, well, I know how to fix the hate. I know how to fix the separation. But what we see here is that true peace is found in Him who has made us. True restoration from our brokenness is found in Christ Jesus. There's also another type of peace that this child, this great King provides. And that's peace within ourselves. So we could say peace within our, our own consciences. John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcame the world. So believer, you have peace even, even when you really don't feel like you have peace. And sometimes we don't feel like we have a lot of peace. Sometimes you wrestle with yourself. You may lay in bed at night thinking over your past sins, over your past mistakes. You know, if I could just go back in time, I would have done this, I wouldn't have done that. All those different things. But the reality is we can't, right? We, we only have one life. We can't go back and change it. But you can have forgiveness. And you can have peace. And it's found in Him. John Calvin said, It is impossible that Christ should be king without also keeping His people in calm and blessed peace, and enriching them with every blessing. But as they are daily exposed to innumerable vexations, endure fierce attacks, and are tossed and perplexed by fears and anxieties, they ought to cultivate that peace of Christ 
which holds the highest place in their hearts, that they may remain unhurt and may retain their composure amidst the destruction of the whole world. Well, verse 7 tells us even more about this Prince of Peace and his reign. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, remember that in verse 6, it stated that the government shall be upon his shoulder, that he has the burden of rule, of authority. It's laid on this child. And this verse shows us how the Messiah will reign. Now, his kingdom, it's unlike any other in, in the history of Israel or Judah because it has no bounds. He's the king of all creation. And his kingdom will continue to grow and grow and grow and fill the whole earth far beyond the land of Canaan to the ends of the earth. Unlike the rulers of the world, he reigns with perfect justice and righteousness. So we can't create peace on earth just by voting for the right president or bowing to other kings. It's only in the role of King Jesus. Now remember, as we said earlier, the problem is in Israel and Judah was, was really unrighteousness and in this turmoil. And, but this doesn't happen in Christ's kingdom. He rules with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. He also fulfills the promises made to David, and he sits upon David's throne. Remember what God said to David in 2 Samuel. He said, 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is unshakable. It will never be defeated. No Babylon, no country, no power can defeat his reign. He brings an end to war. And he brings peace against every enemy, every enemy of God, every enemy of his people. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What does that mean? It means right now as we gather for worship and as we go throughout our days today and this week and tomorrow and our whole lives, Christ is king. He's king over his church. He's king over all the earth. And as citizens of his kingdom, we wait for the day when we see that fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, in the book of Revelation, after Satan and all of his enemies are cast into the lake of fire, we find this, this great, this beautiful picture of the Messiah's reign in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now when we talk about all this, we talk about this reign of this Messiah, this King of this peace that He's brought, this peace 
that he's brought with God, this peace that he's bringing to the whole earth, making all things new. It, it sounds really good, but how do we know that it will happen? And, and even our text, it, it assures us. If you look at, it's not a, a fairy tale. It's not just a hope. It's an assured promise. In verse 7, the last line there says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's that mean? It means that the Lord, the God Almighty, has personally promised that He will do this by His jealous love for His people, we might say, that everything that He has promised will come to fruition. And it did. All that was promised in Christ Jesus did. He was born. He did come. He did die. He did rise again. He did ascend to heaven. And He will return. Because the Lord has said that He will do it. And He makes good on His promises. So back to the question that I was asking. So who is this child? What child is this? Hopefully it's not a secret, but it's not Hezekiah. It's not Josiah. This child is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child is the promised Messiah. This child is the Christ. This child is Jesus. He's been given unto us. Believer, He's been given unto you freely as a gift by God. Have you rested upon Him? Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.